Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. First up, what's happening in Congress with John Hudak. This week, Congress saw something that it hasn't seen in quite some time, and that was a stream of productivity. In the House, uh, the uh, House Republicans were able to push through their budget in a fairly efficient fashion. And in the Senate, Republicans were able to do the same, though it was initially hampered by dozens of amendments proposed both by Democrats and Republicans in an effort to amend the budget resolution. Ultimately, Republicans got enough votes to pass it. And in striking fashion, Congress was efficient in both houses of Congress passing a game plan for what they want federal spending and taxation to look like uh, over the next year. In addition, something else odd happened in the House, and that was Speaker Boehner and Minority Leader Pelosi came together and worked behind the scenes over the course of several weeks in an effort to pass uh, the doc fix, a permanent uh, resolution to the doc fix problem, which involves reimbursement payments to doctors uh, through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. The uh, typical opponents in the House, Boehner and Pelosi, were able to come together and uh, manage a very large bipartisan majority to support this bill. However, not to be outdone, Senate Republicans were unable to come to an agreement, falling one vote short of joining their House colleagues in passing a permanent resolution to doc fix. And as a result, the Senate postponed consideration of that bill for two weeks in an effort to get the votes uh, that are necessary. Finally, something else odd happened in Congress uh, this week, and that was a leadership fight, not among Republicans, but among Democrats. Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid from Nevada announced that he would not seek re-election in 2016, leaving open what will be a very competitive Senate seat, but also a series of leadership fights in the Democratic caucus in the Senate. Chuck Schumer has been anointed as the individual who will take Reid's position as Democratic leader, but infighting is now existing among Democrats for some of the lower-tier positions, especially Democratic whip, where Illinois Senator Dick Durbin is, is facing off with some of his colleagues in an effort to maintain that position for Durbin, or to rise to that position for some of his colleagues. I'm John Hudak, and that's This Week in Congress. For today's episode, I have for your consideration a conversation about social mobility, inequality, and the American dream. Robert Putnam, a Harvard University political scientist and author of the acclaimed book Bowling Alone, was at Brookings for a seminar, and he agreed to sit down with two of our senior fellows, Richard Reeves and E.J. Dion, to discuss his latest work and the issues it raises, particularly for children. He's the author of Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis. All right, and now over to EJ. Thanks, Fred. Uh, We're here to talk about a book that I hope uh, focuses the nation's attention on what may be our biggest problem, uh, the growing opportunity gap between kids of have and have not not, uh, backgrounds. Bob, you called your book Our Kids. Why did you do that, and could you tell us a little bit about the book? Sure. What the book does is to describe, over the last 30 or 40 years, a growing gap between kids coming from college-educated homes and kids coming from high school-educated homes in terms of the amount of resources and opportunities available to kids that will enable them to move up or move down. 
Uh, and the book starts in my own hometown of Portland, Ohio, and describes the opportunities available to the of all kids in, in my class, um, regardless of their family background, to move up. And most of us did actually move up. But now if you go back to Portland, same town, little town in, in Ohio, nowadays, you discover that there's a growing gap between the kids who have from have backgrounds and mansions along the shore and kids from just a few hundred yards inland who are living in double wides in broken uh, homes. And they have a much less open path toward the future. They're, they leave, they're, they're looking toward a very cramped, uh, desolate future. Uh, Fifty years ago, in my, when my parents, when they talked about, we've got to do things for our kids here in Portland, we've got to have a, a, a bond issue, a, a new tax to pay for a, um, a school um, pool or, or a French department or whatever. When they used the expression, our kids, they meant all the kids here in town. They did not mean just my sister and me. Um, but that's changed over the last 50 years. The word, the term, our kids, increasingly now is used by Americans to mean my biological kids. And so if you go back to Portland now and, and talk to you know people in town about some of these kids who are really on the wrong side of the tracks and, and destined for an awful life, they say, well, that's not my kid. I'm not, let their parents worry about them. That's somebody else's kid. And that that shriveling of our sense of we, our shriveling of our sense of responsibility for all the kids in town, I mean to highlight by talking about the Our Kids uh, frame. And you make a point uh, in the book, uh, for example, when you talk about when the U.S. instituted high school for everybody, right. that worrying about all kids is actually not only a good thing to do because it's the right thing to do, but it's actually good for your own kids. It's good for each of us and it's good for all of us. Can you talk yeah, about the interrelationship? It's really true. It's Sometimes people uh, think in terms of game theory that this is a zero-sum game, that if my kid does well, or somebody else's kid does well, that's going to hurt my kids. And that's just empirically not true. Um, it, not investing in these poor kids means the whole country will be poor by a lot, by about 4% of our GDP a year over the lifetime of these poor kids failing to invest in them is going to cost the whole country, including my grandchildren, about $7 trillion. That's, you know, $7 trillion, trillion here, a trillion there. It begins, to, mm -hmm. it begins to add up. And that means it would be in my interest if we would, and my kids' interest, if we would invest in helping every kid to have a decent shot in, in, uh, in life. What happened in the, in the period of the high school reform when, when high schools were instituted across America is that, and, and it began in small towns in the Midwest, and, and you know, you have to imagine going to the local banker or the local rich farmer or a lawyer in town and saying, right, your kid has already gotten a secondary education, you privately provided, he's off in Chicago someplace making a living, but you will be better off if we give a free secondary education to all the kids in town. And that turned out to be the best public policy decision America has ever made because it raised the level of growth for the whole country for two-thirds of a century. We rested, we were able to ground our economic advance in that massive investment in human capital. And at the same time, it leveled the playing field. So all the kids in town had a shot at contributing to the national economy and the national welfare. Richard? Um, uh, Bob, great, great book. Uh, e even better than Bowling Alone, if I can say that. You. <laughs> um, uh, you've been studying... Uh, American society for for many decades, yeah. and you, you you in your in the book now you illustrate through a series of what you call scissors graphs this kind of growing gap 
on all these dimension after dimension, right? It's health, friends, family, schooling, and so on. The amount of time you right. have dinner with your kids. Yeah, they, I mean, just, yeah. And, they, and they kind of, start, they, they sort of, there's a real cumulative kind right. of impact, right, of, of lining them all up. But given that you've, you've been looking at these trends in American society for so long now, was there anything that surprised you? What was the kind of, in this latest kind of foray, this latest investigation, what, what most surprised you in your findings? Well, I suppose, in a way, two things. First of all, the, there's just the sheer repetition of the number of times we have these scissors graphs in which the upper line shows how kids coming from college-educated homes are faring and kids coming from high school-educated homes, the upper third and the lower third in America, and their scissors graphs in terms of what we call goodnight moon time, that is mm -hmm. the amount of time parents spend with their kids. There are scissors graphs in what we might call summer camp time, that mm -hmm. is the amount of time that the amount of money parents are investing in sending their kids to summer camp in the quality of schools they go to and the number of mentors they and friends and and supporters that they, the kids have in various ways i think the most fundamental surprise to me and it was very vivid in, in going back to port clinton is how disconnected poor kids in america have become it didn't used to be that way in america mm. that poor kids were so isolated from everything they they had disadvantages of course but they were when i was growing up even the poor kids in town had other people in town looking at looking out for them. The, you can see this in the stories of the books. The, the pastor who's looking out for a really smart kid who's coming from a poor family background, or the in one case the boss who's uh, of a woman who's her clean cleans her house, but not, she notices that this girl house cleaner ought to be going to college, and she steps in and helps her. Now in Port Clinton, there just aren't those mm -hmm. kinds of supports around for for poor kids, and I think it's because. Fundamentally, as America has become more economically polarized, we've also become more socially segregated. So in our daily lives, we're just less likely now than would have been true a generation ago, even to know people in these, in these really awful mm -hmm. circumstances. And part of the reason for the book is to say, look, do you, do you know how things, bad things have gotten? Would, do you want to live in an America in which there are kids who are grown mm -hmm. up like that? This will seem like a like maybe a little making myself too important, but there have been earlier periods in American history when good journalists and good thinkers have held a mirror, simply held a mirror up. At the at the in the eighteen nineties, uh, a journalist um, uh, in in uh, New York wrote a book called "How the Other Half Lives," mm -hmm. and it was a book about intended to be read by right. people in the silk stocking districts right. of of um, of the Upper East Side, saying, "Look at what life is like in the in the slums of the right. of the Lower East Side," and I think that contributed to so, this awakening sense so you, of justice. So you're almost doing what communities don't do anymore, which is kind of showing showing people how the others live. But I guess my, my, my worry, um, and I guess the question for you, is whether or not we have gone past some sort of tipping point whereby there has been such separation along with what you might think of almost a privatization right. of parenting and kind of communities that actually the Our Kids ideal fantastic as an ideal, but the truth is now that we've almost gone too far. And the idea that you can pull people back into worrying about our kids is, it, it, was there a kind of point at which, clearly you don't think so, otherwise you wouldn't have spent your time writing this book, but I, well, but I worry about how realistic it is to think <clears throat> we're gonna roll back such deep cultural and social and economic trends. I feel a little silly uh, talking about this issue in the presence of EJ, who's written about these big pendulum right. swings in American right. history. <laughs> that's and, right, EJ would and, say it's gonna come back, and, I and, think. And, and EJ and I are on the same page as yeah. far as that's concerned, and we probably would date the cycles in about yeah. the same way, and I that's think true. that the, the, the period at the turn of the last century, around 1900, was a period in which 
there was a shift, measurable shift, in the attitudes of Americans about whether they had responsibilities to other people in the community. Right. And we went from the social Darwinism of the, of the late 19th century, the sense that everybody's in it for themselves and let the devil take the hindmost, mm -hmm. to a sense. And, and part of this actually was, the, was uh, Jacob Reese's holding up this mirror to the other half, how the other half was living, and Americans saying, you know, I don't want to live in that kind of a society in which they're, that's not America, that's not, and it, it is in some sense, and I really mean this, fundamentally un-American for us to be so detached and so unconcerned about other people's kids. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know whether we're in the midst of a swing the other direction, mm -hmm. but that's what I'm counting You're on. You're going to be part when of the swing. Yeah. When you've talked about this book as you were writing it over the last couple of years, you used a phrase that really struck me and possibly might help people on different sides of the our debate understand what you're trying to say. You said, we have a red problem and a blue problem in America and that we've got to acknowledge both yep. and come together to acknowledge both. Can you talk about the red problem and the blue problem? Sure. I, I actually think of this as a purple problem. I mean, the problem of the opportunity gap is a purple problem because mm. part of it you can see most clearly if you look through red conservative lenses, you can see the collapse of the American working class family and that's a big deal and that has real consequences for kids. And parts of the problem you can see most clearly through red, through blue progressive lenses. If you look at the collapse of the working of the wages for working class America over the last thirty years, you can see that very clearly. And in terms of solutions, this is an ideal place in which you could imagine people from the red side and the blue side saying, "We both agree this is a problem, and let's try this and this." You know, if it doesn't work out, the the way this my project will fail is if they start arguing about whether it's really a red or really a blue problem. Right, and mm. you've already seen some right. of that because I've had this hope for, I still have the hope mm. for this book myself, right. that we might begin this conversation where we could acknowledge that if you care about poor kids, you've got to care about both these problems. Right. But you've already seen out there saying, see, Bob Putnam emphasizes how much it's really about family structure without looking at the other side, which is if you hammer people's wages, you're going to hammer people's families. Sure. Mm. And could you talk about how you can pull, pull us back from simply the same old argument? Well, I'm not sure that I can. That's all along been the issue. Our, t our time is, our, the time, the politics of our time is so polarized that almost anything that gets into the public domain immediately gets polarized by the, this left-right mm. debate. And you're, you're right that there is some danger of that in this case, that we end up arguing about, well, is it really this or really that? And it's, of course, really both. Um, I guess I'm betting that people will see, people on the upside of the opportunity gap, will see in the stories of these upper-class kids, but I don't mean Bill Gates' kids, mm -hmm. I mean just us, basically, mm -hmm. um, enough things that they can recognize, and then when they read the story of the lower-class kid, they can see, gee, that's really different. Let me give a quick example. All kids get in trouble. My kids get in trouble. Your kids get in trouble. And, you know, and we all try to pick the kid up who's gotten in trouble and help him out and avoid the worst of the consequences and make, uh, have it be a learning experience. But in upper-class families, in college-educated families, what happens when some kid gets in trouble? They, you know, they, get in, they drink or they get involved in drugs or teen sex or they back the car into somebody else's garage or whatever. In, a, in an upper-class family, instantly airbags inflate and they protect the kid. Um, you know, they hire the best lawyer in town or they send the kid to the best rehab facility or they find the right tutor or they go down and find the right, right pediatrician, psychiatric pediatrician to deal with the problem. Airbags. It's the same thing happens. And as I talk to audiences around the country, everybody recognizes that because everybody has been either been a beneficiary or 
at the producer of these airbags, and now I want to say, right, poor kids don't have those airbags. Is that fair? And the way you talk about the airbags and indeed inequality in the book generally is around income and education. I think it's fair to say that it's more more of a class-based approach. Yes, to, it right. is. So you're talking about the class gaps that are opening up. But right. course, and you, do, you address the issue of race uh, and particularly kind of history of racism within the US. But would it be fair, would it be a fair summary of your argument to say that that to the extent that there's uh, there remain there remain huge race gaps, of course, that those are now largely explained by class gaps, and it's better for us to think about class gaps that include race, rather than think about race gaps in and of themselves. Because that's one criticism, potentially, of your approach, yeah. is that it doesn't pay enough attention to race gaps as separate from class gaps. Yeah, well, I, I hope that's, that is not a fair reading, and I hope it doesn't get to become the reading. I think there are still, in America, serious, purely racial gaps, in which it's the color of your skin and not the size of your bankroll or the amount of degrees you have that determine your fate. And that's especially true in the criminal justice system. And, right. and therefore, the Ferguson debate is perfectly appropriate because the criminal justice system does treat people of a different race uh, differently. And it's not about class. But on there are many other domains in which the class gaps are now much bigger than the purely racial gaps. And right. One way to think about that, I'm not at all saying we've solved race, we can solve, mm -hmm. we can move on mm -hmm. to the other problems. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying from the point of view of poor non-white kids in America, all the problems that they have because of their skin color, or because of their race, are now overlaid by these class gaps that are affecting all kids, including white kids. So I'm hoping that what this focus on class differences will do is enable people to see these are not just problems about those other people. They're problems of all races in America. I'd like us to close, Bob, with your talking a bit about some of the things we ought to do. And at the end of the book, you're very candid. You say, here are some ideas, but you also want us to explore other ideas. Sure. So we really have to put yeah. our minds to solving this problem. But if you could think of one, two, three, however many you want to list, things that you think we ought to be doing, that we could start doing tomorrow morning or a year from now, what are they? Well, there's some big things that would be a little hard to get done that quickly, but that would have a big effect, like early childhood education. The evidence is now really clear that high-quality early childhood education makes a difference, especially for poor kids. Not glorified babysitting, but having professional, trained teachers working with small kids, preschool and you know even in the even in the ages one, two, three. That would make a difference, and we could do that. And it's not yet that is not yet a matter of of left and right or blue and blue and red, because the best, most comprehensive early child education program in America is in Oklahoma, which is one of the reddest of states. So there's some big things we can do, but there's some smaller things we could do that, um, though they wouldn't have the same power as universal uh, pre-K or universal early child education, would have significant power, and we could do. That is, we could in our own lives. Uh, reach out to be steady mentors and, and guides to young people. The characteristic of poor young people in America today is that they are isolated from everybody. They're cut off from the major social institutions. I don't mean just doing drop-by interviewing, you know, dropping by once a month and saying, how are you doing, kid? But providing the kind of, of enduring support and guidance that used to be true, that we used to look out for other people's kids in that way. And lastly, it's, it would, it's, it's simple. It would have a major effect. Early um, extracurricular activities are really invented in America, were invented in American schools as a way of leveling the gap, saying to everybody, mm -hmm. saying to all kids, 
if you, you know, you come to school, you will teach you reading, writing, arithmetic, and also we'll teach you how the soft skills, cooperation and teamwork and, and um, uh, you know, grit and, and delayed gratification and so on. That's why early, that's why extracurricular activities were invented in America and they were free for everybody. But now in the last 20 years, we're starting to charge kids for that, and that is D-U-M-B, because the poor kids are dropping out because they have to pay. Not fair. And it's astonishing how much mm -hmm. there's pulling back from them and how music mm -hmm. programs and some mm -hmm. sports programs. Mm -hmm. You have to pay. Uh, yeah. You have to pay nowadays, mm -hmm. on average, per kid, per sport, per term, $400. So two kids, two sports, $1,600. $1,600 for people who have an income of $200,000. $1,600 is nothing. But if your income, your annual income is $16,000, are you going to pay 10% of your annual income for your kids to play football? No. So that's why there's another one of these growing gaps. And that we could do ourselves right now. One of the things that I love about the book is that you include these big programs, but you also say, I think at that point, right now, pick up the phone, call your school superintendent and find out if they are paid to play extracurricular. So there's, even though it's a, it's a collective problem, but you also give individuals something to potentially do right. when they get to that part of the book as well. And that's why people should read the book. I was reminded as you were talking, Robert Kennedy said many, many years ago that the unemployed just don't have nothing to do. They have nothing to do with the rest of us. And I think you're reminding us of how far apart we have become as a country and how that's bad for our kids uh, is a real national service. So thank you, Bob Putnam, and thanks, Richard Reeves. Thanks. Thank you both. Thank you. That's it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. To learn more about Robert Putnam's book and his other research, visit his webpage on Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. To find out more about social mobility research and ideas at Brookings, visit the Social Mobility Memos blog at brookings.edu slash socialmobilitymemos. This podcast was made possible by my colleagues Tracy Vaselli. Zachary Kulzer, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser.